The sneeze ran away. I have no sneeze. <laughs> It'll come back at a very inopportune moment, I'm sure. Yes, hopefully. Welcome, listeners, to Did You Do Your Homework, the podcast where we connect academic ideas to popular culture, assign you homework, and actually make it fun again. I am Martha Sullivan, one of your wonderful co-hosts, and I am here with, as always, our other wonderful co-host. Yes, that would be me. Uh, (laughs) I'm Pete Romberg, and I am a future garland maker for my Christmas tree. Oh, I guess I can be a professional tree putter upper because I did that on Saturday. Nice. <laughs> we are joined today by special guest Sarah Caputo. Welcome, Sarah, to our podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, Sarah, what should our listeners know about you? Um, well, you guys have cool Christmas themed stuff. So I will say I'm a, trying to keep my cat out of the Christmas tree professional. Um, a worthy cat, goal. Cats two, Sarah zero. Um, but you know, <laughs> early, my numbers can go up. And I am an artist and a graphic designer, and I watch a lot of stuff. So that's it. Uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast was that I would have an excuse to watch more stuff. So I feel that. <laughs> we are going to be talking today about the theme of transformation. But before we get into that, it is important that you, our listener, understand that we are pop culture professionals and we know what we're talking about. In order to prove that to you, we must present our pop culture credentials. These are the last piece of media that we consumed without self-editing for guilty pleasure content. Uh, No shame or judgment here. Pete, why don't you start us off? What's the last thing that you experienced in the world of pop culture? Uh, you just had to choose this week to do a big introduction for the uh, <laughs> pop culture credentials. Um, do it. I, as usual, waited until the very last minute to actually do my homework. I finished watching Fright Night about 10 minutes before we started recording. Um so my homework is actually dating back a couple hours, and it was just... I was going to say, it <laughs> yeah. doesn't count for... <laughs> no, it doesn't count. Um, and it was basically just random blogs that I was finding on Twitter as I was scrolling through Twitter, um, mostly about the, uh, you know, politics dumpster fire that we live in Any right now. Any highlights you can give us? Um, I'm halfway through reading a, uh, a post on Popat, who is a... He's a lawyer who blogs... Um, Basically talking about uh, Michael Flynn lying to the FBI uh, and advice for what to do if you're being um, questioned by the police or the FBI. And the answer is shut up, 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 ask for a lawyer. Don't say anything until you talk to a lawyer. Even if you have nothing to hide. Uh, So I'm just going to ask you to send me a link to that so I can throw that in our show notes. So if any of our listeners feel like being depressed as hell, they can uh, go check that out. And also having good advice about talking to law enforcement, namely, don't. Always valuable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sarah, what is the last piece of pop culture you experienced before coming on our show today? Well... I actually, this was a good pop culture weekend for me. I I did a lot of stuff, but the last thing I did, um, they renovated a theater 
um, down in Oklahoma City, which is where I live, and they have movies, concerts, and live shows there. So my husband and I, Joe, we went and saw Maria Bamford live Ooh. last night. <gasps> um, she was with Jackie Cation, who I recognized from like some late shows, but I didn't know her stuff individually, so it was really cool to see her as well as Maria. And it was really great to see an old theater renovated, like... If I ever become an eccentric billionaire, that might be my thing that I do. Um, <laughs> and it was just really cool to see her live because I think I've seen all of her specials since, you know, since I was like not supposed to be watching Comedy Central like in high school. So it was really, really cool. That's my uh, that's my most recent pop culture thing. That's awesome. She has a show on Netflix, right? Yes. That I is that lady watch yet? Is that like, Lady Dynamite? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, her favorite of mine, uh, I'm not sure if it's still up, it was up for a long time, streaming, uh, it's like the, the special special, something like that, um, where she does stand up, but just to her parents. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's, if, if nothing else for her, that's the, that's the one to watch. So it's really good. Awesome. Uh, as for me, uh, you all know how much I love a good mobile game. Uh, the last thing that I was goofing around with is the brand new Animal Crossing Pocket Camp uh, for mobile phone devices. I have never played an Animal Crossing game before. This is my first one. And so far I find it uh, incredibly relaxing. Uh, as far as I can tell, all all I have to do in it is go to different places and collect fruit and bugs and give them to cute animals who then come and hang out at my campsite. And that's all. But <laughs> honestly, 10 minutes of that in the morning has replaced my usual 10 minutes of scrolling through Twitter. And this is much better for my blood pressure. So... <laughs> Well, speaking of Twitter, between you and Kaylee, uh, my Twitter feed has exponentially more Animal Crossing in it now than it did like a week ago. Just because you post well, pictures of it. Well, that's because the game just came out a week ago. Yeah, yeah. Exa exactly. <laughs> Precisely. Well, I have, I have to share my cute fashions. <laughs> Priorities. So, on to the main event. We are talking today about transformation. Uh, both physical and other. I think there are enough kinds of transformation covered in our homework that we can just make an umbrella uh, term for that. Um, we are going to be touching on a couple of different big ideas, um, including how exactly the characters in our media uh, transform uh, and how those transformations inform uh, their character to us, the audience, and their character growth. Uh, is the... Trans are the transformations that they undergo uh, a metaphor or commentary for anything? And do we think that the uh, media is making any sort of commentary on consensual versus non-consensual transformation? That is, transformation a character may undergo of their own, uh, on their own impetus or accord versus one that is thrust upon them. Uh, and how we think that is, you know, what kind of story we think people are telling uh, either way on those. Um, Pete, why don't you start Great. Uh, and tell us, a, tell us a little bit about the homework that you assigned. 
Yeah, I assigned the first trade paperback of the graphic novel The Wicked and the Divine uh, by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. Um, looks like it was written by Kieran Gillen, drawn by Jamie McKelvey. Um, the Wicked and the Divine is about... Um, so the premise is that every 90 years, 12 gods from various pantheons... Um, appear, manifest, what have you, on Earth by uh, basically being resurrected in the body of an existing teenager. They live for two years, they are loved, they are hated, after two years they die, um, and, 20, uh, and 90 years later the next cycle begins. So uh, the first uh, collected volume, The Faust Act, follows a non-divine teenager, Laura Wilson. Um, this is all taking place in Britain. Um, non-divine teenager Laura Wilson, who befriends Lucifer and a few other gods, um, and sort of follows her first exposure and introduction to the Pantheon, which is what the collection of all the gods is known as. Um, she herself wants to be, become a god, uh, as kind of does everyone, but she's more focused on it than others, um things happen, and I feel I'm safe spoiling this because you should have done your homework. By the end of the collected first volume, uh, Lucifer uh, is thrown in jail uh, for killing some humans with her god power, and uh, then is killed by the minder of all the gods, a old woman named Ananki, which is a Greek goddess of, I think it's like, fate. Um, so that's sort of where that first arc ends. There are currently, I think, five or six uh, trade paperbacks out as the story continues. I love this book so much. Yes. Um, I am of the very strong opinion that The Wicked and the Divine may be the best currently running comic. It is it is uh, currently ongoing. Um. And I think it is the best thing that is currently being written in a climate that is full of very, very good comics. <laughs> my my brother, who was on the show a few episodes ago, got me into it, but he stopped after the first book, um, mostly just because he didn't have other ones. And his thought was like, this is up my, like, <laughs> this would be right up Pete's Alley, but it's kind of like an offshoot of like an American Gods type thing. And the first book kind of feels like that, but where it goes from there is so much more. If you like American Gods, you will love this, but it doesn't feel like a low-rent version of it. Sarah, what were your thoughts? Um, really out of the out of the comics game. I used to read them all the time, um, and I just I'm I'm a sucker for the um, like the American Gods comparison mm -hmm. it's really apt um i'm a sucker for the the well-known figures historical or fictional uh fairy tale figures or mythological figures like put into contemporary settings um so i bet you were super I, into like the morrigan in this yeah like i yeah i am i i just i i'm surprised that I hadn't read it <laughs> previously. Um, but yeah, I, I was really, um, I was really taken with it. I'm probably going to have to now read more of them. So thanks guys. 
for yeah. unofficially assigning me more homework, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> totally extra credit. Yep. <laughs> um, there, there are more expensive habits to form, but... <laughs> or, or, yeah, you use your public library. Use your bookshelf. Hey, that's right. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, I... I think this book is really interesting for a, a lot of reasons. Um, it was written, like the the genesis of the idea, I follow both Jamie McKelvey and Kieran Gillen on Twitter. Uh, they are very entertaining. I highly recommend it. Um, but the kind of genesis of this book was to take a look at how celebrity is treated in our popular culture. Like um, the sort of, predatory no predatory is the wrong word um but there's a reason that these characters in the wicked and the divine die after two years um it is very much a kind of commentary on the f fast act or fast burning nature of celebrity mm -hmm. how somebody can go from like zero to uh lindsay lohan in the span of 18 months and also what it does to you when that's what your life is right because uh, yeah basically the the gods in this book they are performers they give concerts they perform their whole like the whole explanation for why they exist is to keep inspiration uh in sort of the cultural consciousness so the the idea is that they bless us with two years of intense uh creative energy that he, the rest of humanity uses to uh, fuel their art and creative endeavors for the next 90 years until the next pantheon comes along and kind of refreshes the whole system. Uh, so, like, their nature, even though they're gods, they're very transient. Uh, they're very... Um... Everything they do is dialed up to 11. Um, and, yes. and the humans who experience it experience rapture. Uh, and, and like, you know, ecstasy in, in like the shows that the gods put on, um, very much like old, old school mystery cult type, uh, experiences. And as it relates to our theme today, I thought it was interesting that the book is, uh, it's obviously about how, um, these, uh, teens are transformed by being selected by a non but it's also kind of about how proximity to them transforms their audience uh the book opens with a concert being thrown by amaterasu which is uh who is traditionally a japanese sun goddess um but her her audience is just thrown into rapture uh and you know, the long, more long term, the book is about how Laura is transformed by her proximity to and growing friendship with these gods, which I thought was an interesting touch. Like, it's not just about how celebrity changes the people uh, who are kind of consumed by it, but also the individuals that kind of get swept up on the peripheral, how proximity to celebrity can change someone uh not just how it changes the person who becomes the celebrity. Mm -hmm. I feel like that has a, a bigger, a bigger cultural conversation too. Cause I feel like now we're kind of learning more about um, maybe the people behind the scenes of these like big person, like in real life, like these personas, does that make sense? Um, mm -hmm. Like we're seeing the pictures of um, 
the people that are putting on shows, we're seeing the people like on their, uh, this seems like an easy thing, but like on social media, like you see, you know, the, what's the word? Uh, the entourage, like the friends, and like that becomes part of the brand as well. Mm, and sure. um, like I, you know, Taylor Swift comes to mind, you know, her whole thing is like her, the people around her are almost as important as her. Um, and I feel like that's kind of a new interesting way to look at celebrity um, that's reflected here. But no, absolutely. I think, especially in the age of social media, it almost feels reactionary. Like it's much harder for a celebrity to be private. Mm -hmm. So it feels like there's this kind of reaction, like, well, if I can't be private, then I'm just going to show, I'm going to be the first to show everything rather than wait around for someone to do it for me. So, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, so as a result, we get to see a lot of the behind the scenes people, um, in a probably a more curated way but even though it's it's just as curated as everything else they are more visible than i think they ever have been and, and on the flip side in in our society at least there's the sense that these same social media feeds are also allowing us all to share slash overshare um so it's it it's not like you know in the 80s or whenever the paparazzi became a thing the 90s um we're getting all like the behind-the-scenes pictures of famous people without ourselves being able to do the same thing. Now everyone is sort of in the churn. And, like, you know, mm. Taylor Swift has 10 million followers, I have 50, or whatever. Like, you know, there's a difference in scale there, but we're both able to capture and share the same things if we wanted, um, or to curate what it is that we're sharing. There is a very good... It's not in this volume. It's in either two or three. I think it's in two. Um, but there's a very good story, and I'm not going to spoil it. I'm just going to touch on it briefly. But it is uh, a side story about one of the gods that uses Twitter in a really effective way mm-hmm. uh, and shows how Twitter has changed the conversation around reacting to celebrities. Like, if you don't want it to be, your opinion about a celebrity is no longer private. Uh, and what kind of the broader implications are for sharing uh, strong, I'll say, strong opinions about... Hateful? You could could say hateful. Some Um, of them are hateful, yes. Sharing them in a world where they can get retweeted and spread, like, kind of without a thought, and what that does to the whole, uh, I guess relationship to the relationship that we have to famous people mm-hmm. well i think about the the word that that you guys were using like this curation like the fact that everyone can share it you can't you can't control it as much as you maybe want to or think you can um mm-hmm. right because you're in you're in like you might control your own actions but then interpersonally like totally out of your out of your grasp no matter who you are mm-hmm. so. Which, just to loop it back to our theme real fast, is interesting to think about in the context of transformation because it feels like not only are like not only has the nature of celebrity and the way that they communicate uh, with their audience not only has that changed, but are the audience the way that they respond and communicate uh, with people has also changed 
in that it can be a dialogue in a way that I don't think it has been able to before uh, social media. Because, like, before Twitter or Instagram or whatever, if, I mean, if Brad Pitt didn't want to engage with his fans, there there was nothing there that kind of allowed that to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we have this sort of open window um, where at least we have, where at least we have the perception of being able to interact with and uh, kind of be seen by celebrities and people that we admire. Right. For better or worse. Yeah. <laughs> right. Gosh. Um, this is like, this is the most random aside, but it, it's, it's relevant to the Twitter discussion, less, less about our, our homework um, discussion. Uh, a friend of mine went to, and I'm not going to name names because I think everyone maybe has a weak moment, but a friend of mine went to a concert, a uh, Foo Fighters concert, and he didn't like the opening band that much. Like he didn't say anything bad. He was just like, oh, like this is not my speed. Um, and then at least on the local radio here, they play this band a lot. I I replied to him. I was like, yeah, I'm like, I'm real like, I'm, that's a surprising opener for the Foo Fighters. And the bassist from the band replied to both of us. Oh, oh no! Whoa. And was like, "Hey, man, rock and roll's about having fun. Like, just relax." And it was this really weird moment where um, he kind of like, <laughs> this famous-ish person was inserting himself, and I was like, "Oh, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm glad you're having fun. Like, I don't, I don't know if this is a conversation or not. <laughs> um, but that's weird. Like, it was jar. I forgot that we don't just access them; like, they access us." Uh, it was super bizarre. It was a super bizarre exchange that only happened like a week ago. <laughs> um, but that's wild. I hope you didn't feel guilty for uh, sharing or for having that moment because that's something that I feel like I would feel an immense amount of guilt about if that happened to me. And I don't think I don't think that that's a fair reaction because, <laughs> well, like, I, yeah, I, it, immediately I'll be honest. Immediately I did because, like, oh man. And then I was like, I didn't say anything like that terrible to him or about him i didn't tag him like i don't even i didn't even know who this was uh but my immediate reaction was kind of this guilt like oh someone saw me do something bad kind of thing and then i was like oh like you know like you're a kid that got caught doing something and then i was like what a strange thing like he's my age and like we're all grown-ups and like what's he he should be working like this concert's still going on like (laughs) (laughs) play your bass let us move on now and talk about something a little bit different. Uh, Sarah, why don't you give us a brief introduction to this amazing movie that I can't believe I'd never seen before <laughs> until this moment. Uh, let me let me just preface this by saying I'm honored to bring this film to uh, this podcast uh, because I feel like a lot of people missed it, like generationally or culturally uh it is fright night the 1985 uh version there was a remake later that was okay but this is the original this is the 85 and it is a movie that is about young people who find themselves possibly in the presence of a vampire and they are trying to figure out if it's actually a threat or not, and they don't know exactly what they're doing. Uh, hijinks ensue when the vampire finds out that they're onto him, and they try to enlist the help of a 
vampire hunter actor that's on late night TV, kind of uh, a la El- Elvira and that kind of fifties uh, and sixties and seventies like B movie host. And so uh, it is just a horror comedy romp through young people trying to solve hard problems about vampires. <laughs> of of all of them, I loved the aging actor like his name was peter vincent which is clearly a vincent price illusion uh i liked his arc a lot and i liked him as a character and an actor a lot uh yeah this i had never seen this i had heard of it sort of as like you know being brought up as in various cultural touchstones as like a vampire movie um it was delightful 80s schlock in the best possible way you have your John Carpenter sounding softcore porn synth music, uh, which we just found out before the show was done by the guy who did the Terminator soundtrack. Uh, you have your gory, goopy special effects. Uh, it's cheesy. The main character is not a good actor, but whatever. Um, the script... Wait, which one? The kid, the kid or Chris Sarandon? Oh, no, Chris Sarandon's amazing. Like, yeah, the vampire is great. Chris Sarandon. Yeah, no, no, like the kid, whatever. I don't even know his name. He's, whatever, don't care. He's bad. His his friend is really annoying, but, like, in an 80s way, so, yeah. No, his friend was wonderful. And also annoying in an 80s way. (laughs) About his friend, when he went to audition, he thought he was auditioning for the lead. Oh, after he was done, they're like, that's great. You're going to be perfect for, you know, Evil Ed. And he was like, what? Like, you think I'm weird? And they didn't. They're like, um. <laughs> like, oh, no. So that was, I don't know. That's that's another funny thing. All the actors from this movie, like, regularly get together, hang out and do interviews and do, like, little band conventions. Oh, huh. Um, yeah. They're, they're still, like, they did last year. Uh, but, yeah, they talk about... Um, how how their characters have aged you know like in time but but yeah he didn't know he was going to be the sidekick he thought he was going to be the the guy and other than chris sarandon none of them are like famous oh chris sarandon yeah (laughs) i that's i mean he's the best um no i really enjoyed uh just going back really fast i really enjoyed the actor's character i don't know the actor's name i don't know if i'm to be up right now um but the kid who played evil ed i thought he was like just the right amount of over the top kind of wacky like he was a kind of he was a kind of overacting uh in terms of being ridiculous that i totally bought from a high school student Mm -hmm. like yeah, I feel like I've I've been friends with that kind of performative goofball. He also actually looked like he was sixteen or maybe even fourteen, which is nice. Like he wasn't a twenty-eight year old playing a, a fourteen year old. He was probably fourteen to sixteen. Yeah, Charlie, the actor who played Charlie, had a little bit yeah. of. I don't buy you in high school. Like kind oh, of going. You off. failed a couple grades, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> like college was hard and you came back is that you can just tell us um, which there is, I haven't seen it because it was not released I think widely on DVD it's not streaming but there is a Fright Night 2 um, where he is in college uh, I saw I was reading about that because the ending of this movie very strongly implies um, 
when Evil Ed gets turned into a vampire, uh, he gets subsequently staked by uh, Peter Vincent. And then mm-hmm. at the end of the movie, there's a very strong suggestion that, oh, nope, he's not. He's still around. But then the sequel does the sequel is entirely different the, like they they made this little sequel hook that they then did not use the actor who played evil ed decided to not return for the sequel so yeah. that's probably Aww, why bummer. that happened well i think i think there was like we, we talked about this a little bit before the show like for this movie the studio was riding high on some pretty good kind of like core comedy or just like comedy movies and so they kind of let this one go however they wanted it to um, but for the second one, they cut the budget way back. Just in general for sequels, I think they they were doing that at the time. And so I don't think they could afford all the original actors either. Um, and that's something they talked about. Because I think that... Um, I, uh, I, oh, I'm, I'm doing a disservice. I'm forgetting her name. But Amy, Amy's actor, um, she had expressed interest, but like it wasn't like part of the deal. So uh, I think Fright Night 2 could have been amazing, but... They they kind of they they kind of just threw it at the wall with less money. So mm-hmm. um, and it's so hard to find. I can't uh, assess it fairly, so I'm not going to say it's bad because I don't know. But well, um, it's not as beloved. So. Tying it into the theme of transformation, there is a lot of great transformation oh. happening in this. There is first off, the the makeup is a plus cheesy so b movie 80s it's disaster it's actually scary <laughs> right it, it's scary when the when it's not having some serious continuity issues of changing from <laughs> scene to scene um but the, there's also actual um so like there, there's physical transformation uh it's a vampire movie uh i don't think it's any sort of spoiler to say that people become vampires and that's a change (laughs) um but then there's also non-vampiric transformation specifically uh peter vincent who goes from sort of a you know a washed up money-grubbing b-movie star you know elvira type to you know sort of a true believer to being a van helsing type um so he has like a, a real arc of growth and change over the course of the movie in a way that was surprising because the ostensible main character of Charlie did not have any such growth arc at all. Um, I, I didn't think. Um, yeah. So I, I, I would agree with that. I just want to say real fast that I deeply appreciated when um, Peter Vincent throws out the line. Well, they're, they're talking about how they can save Amy, Charlie's girlfriend who has been turned into a vampire. But uh, Peter Vincent says, you know, if we can kill, I'm sorry, if we can kill Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) Jerry the vampire. The best name for a vampire ever. If we can kill him before dawn, she'll turn back into a human. And Charlie's like, how do you know that? And Peter says, everything else from the movies has been true. Why would (laughs) this not be? And I loved that. Because it's like all of his knowledge, all of his vampire hunting knowledge is coming from B movies. <laughs> yes. And it's all correct. It's all correct. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> well, he, I, I love the scene. It's maybe one of my favorite scenes with the mirror. Um, when he has the little toy mirror to do like the, fa- like they're trying to alleviate um, our, uh, Charlie, Charlie's his name. We're trying to alleviate Charlie's anxieties about, the, the neighbor so he brings the little prop mirror and when he looks in it he actually can't see the reflection uh-huh. <laughs> it, it, like that i feel like that's the transformative moment 
where yes. he's like, this is real. Like, and, um, I just, I love that. Cause he's like, these kids are dumb. Like I'm just, you know, they're paying me for this, whatever. And then he's like, Oh no, <laughs> I need this now. <laughs> from, from, a pure, want... from a pure filmmaking standpoint, the mirror work in this movie was phenomenal. They, they played up that whole vampires don't cast mirror reflections to a T and it looks great. I was just gonna say I really enjoyed the scene where Amy is dancing with him at the club yeah. and she's looking back and forth from him to where his reflection should be in the mirror and not seeing it I thought that was very like legitimately creepy yeah and it's the kind of thing where you can like you think about it for two seconds you're like I know exactly how they did that but man <laughs> that looks good <laughs> Uh, I was thinking about, there's a mirror scene at the beginning, like when he first comes into the house to kind of scare him, to scare Charlie. Um, and the director admits that they mislit this a little bit because there is a, and it's amazing if you know it's there, there's a scene where he's opening the door and in the mom's mirror, the door opens by itself. And like, it's, it's really phenomenal, especially for 85. But because they mislit it, you can barely see the mirror on the wall. And, uh, oh no. He's like, that's one of my regrets. He's like, that was so hard <laughs> to do and you can't see it. Um, I, I, I noticed that right away. You, okay, good. The, 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 not I the bad lighting, but the, the, the mirror was there and everything. Yeah. yeah. I, the first time I saw it, I missed it until I read that. And then I looked at it again and I'm like, okay. But yeah, like that is kind of dim. But mm -hmm. Yeah, I missed it. I didn't catch that part. But, there, but there that's really great, cool. Great theme of mirrors. But yeah, a lot of characters. I mean, horror... I feel like horror in general is really good to use as a catalyst for talking about transformation because it usually involves somebody <laughs> either willingly or unwillingly being turned into something else. Um, I, I, I feel like we get a double dose of that in Fright Night because obviously we have the, the vampires, um, but then they like go deep deep into vampire lore so you also have the fact that they can turn into wolves mm -hmm. so we get a little and we get a really really gross uh pretty awesome sequence where a uh when ed is killed he's killed in wolf form so we get to see him reverse transform back into a human so it's almost a little bit of a werewolf a taste of a werewolf movie as well. Yeah, it's like the director was like, I want to do a vampire movie, but I also want to do a werewolf transformation scene. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I'll do the both. Vampires, the vampires being able to turn into wolves is a Dracula thing. Yeah, yeah. I like the children um, of the night line, right? But yeah. Interesting. I just, I appreciated how many, like not every vampire transforms the same way. Like that is something that was new like new to me um as someone who watches i watch a lot of horror but not necessarily a lot of vampire specific um because the way that we're talking about the, the wolf transformation but also just um that character's transformation like his teeth like are too big for his mouth and like his eyes are really big and like he looks really kind of grotesque and then when amy transforms she's like well sexy and less scary um yeah and that, that's canonical vampire though because lady well, vampires are sexy well, then Jared transforms, and he has the two different forms, right? He has, like, the sexy vampire with, like, the long nails, and then he has, like, the kind of goopy, scary <laughs> transformation, too. Yeah. The um, demon face. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Well, and then, at some point, Amy under, like, Amy continues into the kind of demon face, and, 
like the way her mouth opens in a way that is very upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> a shark kind of teeth thing. With, with a bit yeah, of a Glasgow like grin going on. Too many teeth. Well, and I, I liked that the, the vampires had a mode that was just monstrous. Where, like, they have so many teeth that they're kind of spilling out. Um, very kind of demonic form. Um, I also liked when Jerry is trying to turn into a bat while he's on fire. <laughs> yes, <laughs> And yes. you get to see, like, eight stages of transformation because he can't really do it. And also he's burning. But at some point his skeleton is, like, halfway between person and bat. Uh, the effects guys had to have so much fun with this movie. Yeah. They're like, what should we build today? It doesn't matter. Yes. Make it. We're going to build it. Uh, <laughs> and then we're going to fit it into the movie. It's going to set on fire. I couldn't help laughing the first time they went, like, true monstrous transform because it's like, oh, what do vampires have? They have fangs. Like, two fangs, you know, to draw blood. <laughs> what if instead they had a lot more fangs and they were crooked all over the mouth, just sort of pointing out every which way? That's a thing. Let's do it. I feel like that's not unique to this movie, though. Like, I feel like the the lots and lots and lots of teeth is something I've seen in other vampire movies or shows. The only other thing I can think of that's similar is the blade to, like, uber vampires, um, which have, like, the their whole mouths open up. Well, there's sort of this subgenre of vampire film that's like where the vampires are more animalistic and like predatory instead mm -hmm. of like suave and i feel like there you see sort of the grotesque like you see the crazier like mouth action and you see the more uh demonic's a good word like you see less uh count dracula and more just like feral thing that lives in the woods um Nosferatu. So like, yeah yeah like the the beast style you know I feel like this one kind of did both. They're like, we want to, we want it to be cool, but we also just want to scare people. So we'll do both. <laughs> the best way to describe this movie is we just did both. Like... We just did both. Why not both? <laughs> right, night. Why not both? Um, I think what's the one? One other. We were talking about um, Martha mentioned like consent, like non-consensual and consensual. And one thing that I think is really interesting, and I don't, I don't have a fully formed thesis on on the whys and the hows but i found it incredibly interesting because when we when we kind of meet jerry again best vampire name um his henchman calls him jer and i almost lost it at that it was great <laughs> it's like jerry's enough <laughs> um but he you know he clearly is like having these women come over and you know we don't see those interactions but the assumption is that they weren't consensual um, based on how they talk to Charlie and how he sees them and stuff. And there is like a rear window thing going on because the way he finds out is he just like looks at his neighbor with binoculars while B movies play in the background. You know, like a normal <laughs> high school does. Yes. And, uh, and so we assume, or at least I assume, that those were like non consensual and he didn't turn them into vampires. Like they found their bodies later. Like he just killed them. He ate them and killed them. But then when we have Ed, who's cornered, um, Jerry basically asks him, he's like, do you want to be, you know, uh, not afraid anymore? Do you want to be liked everyone? You know, you don't like your nickname. Everyone's mean to you. Um, do you want to turn basically? And he consents. And I thought that was really interesting. And then with Amy too, um, there's a little bit of like, 
ambiguous hypnotism on the dance floor <laughs> when they go to this club uh, to escape him and he finds them there. But then when he's actually kind of lured her um, to the point where he wants to bite her, he kind of waits for permission in a really interesting way. So I can't really figure Jerry out because I think sometimes he just like eats people. And I think other times he waits for them to tell him. And I, it raises weird and interesting questions, I think, about consent and vampirism. <laughs> so, Well, and Amy, the, the whole deal with Amy was really kind of upsetting for me not in like a bad way like i i enjoyed this movie but the whole question of like is she is she choosing to i don't know mm-hmm. i keep going back to the fact that she's supposed she's a 16 year old girl and he's ostensibly an adult um mm-hmm. so there's there's a little bit of a weird thing going on there Might with not keep you out the of the summit he... <laughs> 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 Um, but but that it's it's also a very vampiric story thing to have like the the really old attractive vampire um and the teen girl falling in love with him and having that be sort of a romantic thing like oh you're so wise and you know you've seen everything in the world but you're still choosing to love me and it's like well no it's still pretty it's still pretty creepy and kind of gross um, well, and especially with evil vampires like this, a canonical vampire power is hypnotism. So it's always like that makes the consent even more squishy. Dubious. Yeah, du- dubious exactly. Like when when you can just hypnotize s- someone. I will say that I was reading the TV tropes page for this movie, um, and Chris Sarandon has gone on record and as saying, uh, words are hard. Um, that he wanted that kind of ambiguousness to be in his character. Like he wanted audiences to feel some kind uh, like some Sorry. remnants of humanity mm-hmm. in Jerry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those, those moments of like empathy and sensitivity are very much intentional. Um, I just don't know that they make him less predatory. Yeah. Like I, I definitely agree. Like I definitely agree. Cause even though, like I, I'm with you with the hypnotism because it does seem like he's asking for permission, but how genuine is it, right? How authentic is that permission when, a, you know, it's sort of like you're in a position of power. Can someone really say no, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, uh, I, at the time, I'm, I'm forgetting names, but I looked some of this up. There were some critics that were kind of uh, psychoanalyzing the character because it's he, at the time it was kind of unusual to have this like sympathetic vampire, right? And... Uh, Chris Randon plays it so dualistically. Uh, they're like, it, it is odd that he seeks out the company of such young people. Um, like that, like that alone is, is very odd. And so it, it does make his relationship with Amy really strange. I, 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 I like how they show it uh, narratively, but like you said, it doesn't necessarily make him less of a bad guy that he has, maybe some human attachments to it because it's still really strange. So mm-hmm. I was also getting a little bit uh, coding him maybe as bi and, and evil Ed maybe as gay um, just in, in a couple throwaway lines and like in a way that in the eighties would have been like 
low-key under the radar coding and if you were to remake it now you would just like have them be openly that and and it's fine um and then we I, get... i'm just gonna say real fast on that on that topic the um the insinuations with jerry and his minion yeah billy i think Bill. yeah uh, Bill. was was uh intentional on the part of the director hmm. um and not registered on the part of either of the actors until they actually watched the movie. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm glad I was picking up something that right, was intentionally put there. And, th and then, of course, we get into problems of, like, great, all the vampires are gay. That's not problematic at all. Womp womp. Um, but, yeah, it, it was interesting that it was in there. Especially in, like, the mid-80s. Well, I, I think the last sort of... Like, as far as transformative things go, and since we were kind of talking about these relationships, you know, who has a relationship with who, Amy's transformation is super, like, her own transformation is super interesting. Um, and I, I read a little bit about this just from the actress's point of view, and she was sort of saying that the dance floor scene, even though she might have been sort of lured, you know, that uh, that hypnotic look, um, that there was a moment that she took, like, as a, as a as a character, Amy, she took control of it because you see her kind of dance in her own style and then he copies her and um, it's sort of this, because uh, she'd been a very meek character, you know? She doesn't really stand mm -hmm. up to people and she's got kind of this cute little voice. Um, like, this, and that's played up that way. It's not it's not her natural voice. And, uh, and then in that scene, she kind of, this sounds gross, but I think you know what I mean. Like, she matures um, as far as, like, making choices and and stuff but again it's super, it's super weird right because they're not authentic actions she's dancing with a vampire who's most likely controlling some of her behaviors um but then after that um after that it just uh and her hair gets kind of better uh, <laughs> during that scene um but i thought that was interesting that um the actress kind of at like herself added that to it she was like oh all these things are happening i want her to get some agency here in this moment and act more adult even though she's still a teenager um mm -hmm. that was I really, interesting just that she that in there yeah no i really like this story as a way um as kind of the story of amy's uh yeah as as like what are what are words transformation uh, i like i like this as the story of amy finding her agency mm -hmm. yeah. i wish that that had kind of played out a little bit more in the end of the movie because we end essentially in the same place that we started um yeah the only person who had character growth in this was peter vincent well, I don't think I don't think that's fair to say. I just would have liked so like for Amy, we she gets turned into a vampire, um, and then that gets reversed. And I guess I would have liked to have seen some more lasting mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. changes or effects from that experience for her. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. I, I would understand if she wasn't like an. I want to be, it would have been super interesting if she'd been like, no, I, I want to stay this way. Um, but even if it had been more like being a little bit more in charge of her interactions with Charlie at the very end of the movie, mm -hmm. I think would have been kind of cool. It would have been a good counterpoint to how the movie opened where he's kind of pressuring her 
you know, to advance their relationship physically. And at the end, they're just still hanging out in his room. Um, yeah, it would have been a good counterpoint if we had seen her kind of somehow be in, in the lead of, of some kind of interaction. We really don't see them at the end. We mostly just see through them Peter Vincent again. Um, when I, I just when you were talking, I just had thought like, what an interesting movie this would be if it had just been like kind of Amy. Like, and it's it's weird, right? Because it's hard to watch this movie in the post-Twilight film scape. It is. You know, and I was like, if it had just been Amy, but Amy doesn't end up with him because, you know, he's an evil vampire. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, that would have been really interesting, but... Well, hey, so so talking about people who undergo radical changes and then maybe don't want to change back, uh, Mm. Martha, do you want to talk about uh, your homework? I really do. So, (laughs) uh, my homework for this episode is a book called Uglies by Scott Westerfeld. It was published in 2005, which means that before we had Bella, before we had Katniss, before we had Triss, there was Tally Youngblood from Uglies. Uh, Uglies is a cornerstone YA dystopian novel it is about a society in which at the age of 16 everyone undergoes radical plastic surgery to become capital P pretty Uh, these this is pretty in a physical sense uh, that has been standardized uh, across all people so not only does everybody get to look pretty but they all get to look kind of the same uh, Tally is a teenager who is just a couple months shy of her 16th birthday uh, she is very much looking forward to uh, getting to undergo the surgery and kind of begin the rest of her life uh, until she meets Shay uh, another girl who tells her that there is a society outside of their city um where people go who never undergo this transformation. They are living off the grid. Uh, They are ugly forever. And to Tally, this is like the most horrifying thing ever. Why would anybody want to be ugly forever when they had the option of being pretty? Uh, So the, the sequence of events is a little bit predictable, but I think it's predictable because at this point we've had so much uh, similar literature uh, kind of with ugly's DNA in it. But, um, she becomes an agent for the government to root out this uh, society of dissenters. Uh, And while she is there spying for them, she realizes that maybe there is something to this way of life and that maybe what the government is doing is actually bad. Uh, And then she learns that in addition to the cosmetic surgery, uh, people also undergo um, brain surgery that basically brainwashes them into being beautiful and passive and compliant and easily controlled. Uh, The rest of the series follows Tally as she embarks on her uh, God-given YA adventure girl quest to take down the government and restore uh, agency and freedom to the world's population. And everyone listening knows how much I love making Pete read YA. So... (laughs) uh Um, this, I, I mean, we all remember the 13 Reasons Why debacle. Uh, this was not that. Um, this was more similar to that book I've already forgotten the title of. Summer Prince? Is that a thing? Yes, The Summer Prince. Great, okay. Um, 
You might have heard me groan a bit there when Martha said the character's name was Tally Youngblood, because when I read that on page one, I let out a similar groan, possibly more vocal. But it's not that bad of a YA book. Um, learning that it came out in 2005, which I just learned, um, does revise my opinion of it upwards, because it doesn't feel as reductive slash template driven, because it helped invent that template. Um... It, like, as I was going along, I was getting more into it. I was liking the ideas it was doing. Um, I think that, that, honestly, the two problems I have, like, like, not problems I have with it, but the two things that were strikes against it for me is that YA Lit is not my cup of tea, so there was that. And at the beginning especially, I couldn't help but think of uh, the Kurt Vonnegut short story, Harrison Bergeron, which is kind of dealing with similar issues, but from the different direction. And it, in my mind, it just can't compare favorably to that. Um, but as the story went along and the narrative evolved, it did. Uh, I, I liked it more. Um, really glad that there's no uh, generic YA lit love triangle that's going on. Um, like there's a little drama, but it's not a you know Katniss, Peeta, um, Gale situation. Um, and there was a lot of unique and interesting stuff going on. So. Uh, I liked it. I thought it was perfect for YA lit, especially the obsession with, like, pretty and ugly, um, the way friends change when, you know, they, they get separated, they, they level up to the next tier of society, which is kind of part of this, too. Um, there's a lot of good work going on in here, especially for, for a teen audience. Yeah, one of the things that I really love about these books, um, is that they... They do a lot of work to saying that the way that you feel as a teen is okay. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like there's, when you're a teenager, like your whole life is transformation. Like you're going through puberty and you're super awkward and you're feeling lots of feelings and everything is cranked up to 11. And these books say you could be like everyone else. But isn't it kind of better to be a little ugly? Like, isn't it kind of better to be you rather than wanting to be you know, quote unquote, the same pretty as everybody else around you. You know, the, there are a lot of scenes in the movie where Tally gets to see like magazine photos from bef like from several hundred years ago when we all looked the same. And she's like, like she has trouble comprehending why anybody would want to look different because she's been conditioned to think that it's better for everyone to look the same. Um, but the voices of the resistance are like, but how much more interesting was it when everybody looked more unique? And it, at first she had a visceral negative reaction to the magazine, but over a, a week or two, it was like, oh, that's increasingly normal for her, um, mm -hmm. which is nice. There's, that, that there's also... Oh, sorry? Well, <laughs> what you were just saying reminded me of uh, a point of whiplash I had in this book, Um where there's a throwaway line about they take all the uglies, quote-unquote, uh, from their parents at the age of 12, stick them in dorms until they're 16 as, like, a way to control them and let them all cluster together um, and get their steam, like, blow off steam until they are old enough to get the surgery. Um, and it, it reminded me of jokes I used to make when I taught middle school of, like, yeah, middle school's crazy. You might as well just, like, take all the kids, round them up, and have them, like, go to work camps for three years until the hormones start leveling out a little. 
So what I'm like, oh, great, dystopian future also has the same ideas as me. Good. Well, and then, there's, then there's a line later that's like, oh, maybe we're not ugly when we're 12. Maybe we're just awkward. Yeah, like... exactly. <laughs> <laughs> maybe being 12 to 14 is kind of terrible. Yeah, like when, when, Tally, first, when Tally first meets... Um, like a normal looking middle-aged person who doesn't look like who hasn't been synthetically prettied, but also looks like a, you know, what, what we all would consider to be normal. And she's like, Oh, you're not so bad. Maybe, maybe what we think of as ugly is just being 12. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is. (laughs) Um, Well, and 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 I also, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I also think it's really interesting when you think about the fact that this book was written in 2005, how much, this isn't super related to our theme, but how much DNA of the dystopian power girl comes from this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, but... I don't think with, I don't think that we get, without Uglies, I don't think we get Divergent. I don't think we get the Hunger Games. Um you know, maybe we would eventually, maybe that's not being fair, but I think that there's a lot of Scott Westerfeld DNA in those stories. Uh, and one of the things I like about Tally as a heroine is that she's, like, obviously uh, becomes a very capable uh, hero, but she is awkward and she does stupid stuff and she's really, like, feminine and kind of girly and is very unapologetic about all of that. She doesn't have to be, like badass superhero hunting for her own food like can can destroy everybody physically um she doesn't have to be all those things and she still gets to be fearless and a hero she she still has the the ya lit hero uh great at everything if necessary thing but that's just what like that that's sort of a part of the dna of the you know the genre. Well, what do you so. mean by what do you mean by great at everything? Well, it's just um specifically it's like that she is, very quickly becomes like the best hoverboarder or around and and like it's all over time so I get that her skills are improving and whatnot but eventually she's flying around barefoot escaping specially trained like bioengineered uh, special forces and and that's like just like I said that's part of the DNA of the genre so uh, it's not really a knock against it. Yeah, I do think that this novel does a good job of kind of building that stuff into... Like, you get to see her do all these things that she's good at. Right. So it's not just, like, suddenly she's an amazing hoverboarder, fighter, whatever. Right, like, it like takes the whole stuff. book. And the, the big rescue scene at the end is based off of, like, pranks that she pulled when she was still in Uglyville or whatever they call it. Like, she's using... She uses the skills that she already knew in innovative and interesting ways but yeah this one uh uglies gets into transformation in like it's it's a bit like the horror movie and there's like six different transformations going on there's the the physical transformation that everybody uh undergoes or wants to undergo there's her kind of mental transformation from thinking that this is okay and that what it's what she wants to finally you know realizing that like oh no this is bad (laughs) um and then at the end, I, I think her final kind of transformation is when she volunteers to go back to society and voluntarily undergo the pretty transformation in order to help um, 
the rebels find a cure for the brainwashing. That's like the the final kind of transformation. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's like her final evolution from, you know, unwitting participant to, um, like, rebel then to not sacrificial lamb because she fully expects to come back. But there's this, like, fearless level of, yeah, I guess sacrifice is a, is a good word for it. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's her it's her takes a level in badass moment, I think. Yes, yes. There's there's also um non consensual transformation where her friend Shay is made pretty, um, near the end oh, of the book. God. And like uh, Shay was the one who, who convinced Tally in the first place to not become pretty and to run away and all the rest. She was someone who fiercely valued her independence and her her, you know, normal uh, quote-unquote ugly appearance um but then after the procedure you know she was both made physically pretty and then also her brain was scrambled so she was totally fine like she was happy being that way and so it's it's that situation where like the procedure was clearly non-consensual when it happened because she was putting up a fight and kicking and screaming and you know they anesthetize her or whatever um and that's all sort of off screen so we just see the result of it where now she's completely changed and completely happy with the changes that have happened to her, uh, again, because they scrambled her brain, but, like, th- th- there's some good moral quandary stuff going on of, like, if she's happy now and doesn't want to get changed back, what right do we have to change her back, even though we know that she's, you know, that the only reason she doesn't want to change back is because they messed with her brain. Um, it's it's actually kind of an interesting parallel to Fright Night, the whole issue of um, consent, you know, is how how much is Amy consenting when she's under mind control, but still kind of taking control? Like, how how well can Shay consent to anything uh, well, um, and also Amy... if she's been made to think that, like, being pretty is what she wants? Mm-hmm. And Amy as a vampire being, like, super into being a vampire... Uh, and then, you know, obviously being happy once she's changed back, but in the moment she doesn't want to get changed back to a human. I, you know, I don't know that we know enough about what she's thinking in that scene to know that. I'd say she's attacking the the main dude trying to kill him, so, and, and turn him into a vampire, so I'll give her wants to stay vampire. But you but have a good point. Or at least, like, told, like, isn't he on the roof being like, my love, like, oh, save my life. Yeah, you have a good point. That could still be mind control. <laughs> Even though I'm demonic, you still... Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, like, I, I know I didn't, like, I'm going to tell on myself. I, um, I, didn't, I didn't get a chance to read this one. Um, but when you, when you were talking about, um, you know, that, that, that's really interesting, uh, this idea that after the after the non-consensual part um you know what is cons- what does consent look like in a brain that's kind of been so deeply changed mm-hmm. uh, to change back like that um that's really interesting that's really interesting to me just for their for their society how many of them think they've actually been wronged and just i don't know well, and none of them me. like <laughs> none of them know 
is right. is part of it unless you're part of like the evil government conspiracy doing it um like nobody knows well and before before she gives herself up to kind of become like a double blind secret mole tally has written down that she consents to uh take the experimental cure because she's like after i undergo this process i don't know that i'll be able to consent to it but i can consent now so past me is going to cover for future me uh curse you past me because <laughs> <laughs> the assumption is that if Shay had had that choice that she also would have consented to have the process reversed she just can't do that now and it's like well even though we know that you're brainwashed we can't speak for you um, which I think is really supposed to be a very strong counterpoint to the fact that the government is doing all this stuff to people, uh, to people's physical bodies and their brains without their consent. Or knowledge. So it's like, well, we know that we're leaving you in a state that is non-optimal, but we are not going to do anything to you without you telling us it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's get let's revisit our discussion questions and see if there are any more points of points of discussion that we kind of want to touch on. Um, so I want to I want to kind of turn us to the the question about transformations being a metaphor because I think we've kind of danced around that, but I don't know that we've satisfactorily addressed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or maybe we have. I mean, we talked about Amy's transformation being kind of a metaphor for her. I mean, I feel like vampires and werewolves are always a metaphor for sexuality. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I don't know. Like, typically, yeah. Um, I, I feel like even when they try to subvert, they, you know, the big they, I feel like even when they try to subvert it, it's still just kind of so deep into that mythos. Um, well, it's like what we talked about before. The the vampire trope is old vampire dude going after some young woman. Um and and that's like that's the generic outline of many vampire stories and that sort of includes that sort of sexual awakening as part of that. I do think it's interesting that Amy's sexual awakening starts before the vampire even enters the picture. Mm-hmm. Because like her first scene is you know, deciding that she's ready to have sex with Charlie and then him being a total jackass <laughs> uh, and blowing her off to peep through his windows, which was the moment that I decided he was the worst person ever. Yep. Um, Normal. Who didn't spend their <laughs> high school nights that way? That's what I want to know. <laughs> uh, but I, I do think it is probably fair to say, even though we don't get a whole lot of aftermath, but that the whole episode with Jerry probably allows Amy to own like be more confident mm-hmm. I hope maybe less reliant on uh yeah I thought that's what the last scene was trying to convey sort of like poor she, she had better hair at the end I feel like that meant something I don't <laughs> I did have better hair at the end well and this isn't like we didn't talk about this because it, it seemed superficial but in the last scene, even though she doesn't do much, her hair is like the cool hair from the disco, right? And uh, and her clothes are kind of cooler. And she is sitting with him. She's not like sitting on the floor hiding from their mom, I guess. I don't know what that whole thing was about. Um, 
But I, I feel like there were attempts at cues that she had grown into herself. But again, mm-hmm. like we don't have enough information exactly. Um, I have just. I that- actually, I do think the hair and the clothes is a stronger indication than we might initially think because frequently in you know visual media when you don't have time to do a whole like lot of um exposition you use visual shortcuts and the fact that she's dressed similarly to the you know her big like sexual awakening scene when she's not being vampire controlled i do think that that is important also those cues might have been a little more flashing back in 1985 when True. it's sort of easier to see what's the nerdy look versus what's the cool look. Um, I mean, we didn't say this outright, but I uh, I will say one thing we didn't mention, and it's important because even for the 80s, I felt like it was a lot. She only wore like huge pastel outfits and like she had bows in her short hair that didn't do anything and ribbons mm-hmm. and stuff. And I kept thinking like, you know, it didn't look strange compared, you know, to the the whole world they were in, but like, it just looks super uh, inconvenient to be wearing those things. It was very childish, like overall, like huge sweaters when it was like clearly coded to be like maybe fall or summer. Um, she was dressed very young, like, even for something in high school. Yeah. You know? fr- frumpy and mm-hmm. uncool. Yeah. And very bright and very kind of like hapless a mm-hmm. little bit. Mm-hmm. Like I just found this, like I'm wearing this today. And then at the end it's like, Oh, this is an outfit I chose. You know, I, yeah, you know, but, um, for, for the wicked and the divine, we already talked about it being a major metaphor for fame. Um, and the one thing I want to say there is that ball is like, looks like either Drake or, you know, LeBron. Oh, no, he's supposed to, he's supposed to be Kanye. Ka- Kanye. And then later he sort of oh. looks like Drake cause he gets the beard going on. Um, they're all all they're all visually modeled after and very intentionally visually modified after real pop stars. Yeah, Lucifer is obviously thin white Duke Bowie. Um, Amaterasu is also Bowie. They're all Bowie except Amater- for Ball. <laughs> Amaterasu is Florence and the Machine, Pete. Oh yeah, I was just thinking with the makeup, like the 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 like lightning bolt face paint. No, you're because right. I- cool i thought jim and the holograms and i should have known i was wrong because that's not the right also that thing. she kind of <laughs> did look like that um but so so there's that metaphor but then there's also um so i i, I don't know like something about like the whole two years limit and it's only teenagers sort of is probably saying something maybe again just the price of fame and the burnout but also maybe just like the intensity of like teenagerhood and puberty i think it's i think it's also a little bit about how quickly and intensely celebrities come and go Mm -hmm. like someone can be very very intensely famous for a very short amount of time and then we completely forget who they are Mm -hmm. the one hit wonders yeah exactly it almost seems to be a comment more on the fandom than the celebrities because like how passionate were you about your favorite thing when you were like a teenager Mm. and now like you hide all those Zanga entries. You know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> yeah. I think that I think the two year mark has more to do with the people that love them or despise them than themselves almost, because um, that's the inspiration, right? Hmm. Uh, sorry. Hi, cat. Go cat. Is that yeah. Nibbler. That's Nibbler. Yeah. Hi, Nibbler. <laughs> <laughs> he woke up and was confused that there wasn't food directly in front of him. So. And then I I do feel as though we have sort of covered 
the consensual nature. I mean, obviously consensual transformation is better than non-consensual transformation. I think we can all agree that character growth and change is better when the character is seeking, is seeking it. Although actually now that I'm saying that ugly is, does have a bit of non-consensual transformation just in that, I mean, aside from the obvious, but in the fact that uh, Tally is forced into going to the rebel camp like that's not a choice that she makes she's forced into it but then that becomes the catalyst for her like ultimate for the better character growth she, so she she is in a no-win situation that makes her go but once she goes the choices she makes are her own true she does she it is her choice to um try to uh rebel again for real this time um so yeah, I guess in that way, her her ultimate transformation is driven by her own agency. I think there's a it, like of all of all of our media that we're we're talking about today. Like there's this idea um, that these transformations, while some are consensual, some are not. They're all there's like a there's like a hint of the martyr, right? Like they're they're in circumstances that foist big decisions upon them, hmm. but then ultimately, it's their decisions. Unless you're being bitten by a vampire, um, in which case that goes out the window. But in like in the Wicked Divine, <laughs> what I understand about Scott Westerfield's uh, piece, it seems like the the circumstances might be beyond your control, but then the next step is is what the transformation is. A- actually, you know what the Wicked yes. and the Divine? It's non-consensual. Um, Laura wants to become a god, but none of the gods had any say in them becoming gods. Um, Mm-hmm. Once and some of them are actually unhappy about it. Um, later on, it, it's revealed that at least one or two of them, like, kind of had a choice, or like somebody helped pick them out. Um, but but across the board, it's like Anankicha shows up, and it's like, "Yo, hey, you're Minerva. What up? You're gonna die in two years, twelve-year-old girl. Sorry." Well, and yeah, and the the ultimate <laughs> way, like the ultimately the method by which she uses to choose vessels i think is a fair word to say has Mm -hmm. not yet been revealed in the comic um but yeah it's not like people sign up for for this process right that's true i I guess i'm thinking more of the of the gods but right what once they become the gods they they own it pretty well um right but at at the heart it's it is a non-consensual transformation there i feel like that should be a it would make no sense in the wider world, but I feel like that would make a very good enamel pin. Like, consensual transformation is the best transformation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What? Start that Etsy Uh, store. (laughs) There you go. So that's going to do it for us, for our conversation today. Uh, Sarah, if you want people to be able to find you on the internet, where can they find you? Oh, Yeah. I am on the internet. Um, I can be found on Instagram and Facebook as uh, Tiny Revelations. Just look it up, and I'm the first thing that pops up. And I draw a lot of ghosts and foxes and stuff, and sometimes pop culture things. So, Very, very cute. Very, very cute art. Um, I can be found on, the, on both Twitter and Instagram at Magical Martha. 
Pete, where can our listeners find you? I'm available on Twitter at Pico3000, where, as discussed at the beginning of the episode, I'm mostly doing politics and pop culture. (laughs) Uh, My Instagram feed is a lot of cozy sweaters and guinea pigs right now. Um, And also my Christmas tree, which I'm really excited to have up. (laughs) Um, You can find our show on the web at homeworkpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at dy. Uh, D-Y-H podcast. You can find us on Facebook. You can email us if you have a question, comment, concern, suggestion for a show. Uh, show at homeworkpodcast.com um, Please uh, rate and review us on iTunes. That is the best way for people to, for new listeners to find us uh, and for our podcast to stay uh, relevant. Uh, you can download us on iTunes, of course, uh, or SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, wherever you would download podcasts. I'm pretty sure you can find us. You're listening to it now. Uh, Just get it wherever you got this. <laughs> and then tell three friends. And yes. then tell those friends to tell three friends. And so on and so forth. We are now a pyramid scheme, but we're not going to cost you any money. Yet. Uh Pete, talk about our next episode. Our next episode theme was something that we were debating and, and trying to come up with a good, clever name for for a while. And I think we ended I believe up... We... Yeah, I believe we settled on tentatively moments of character transcendence. Yeah, and my subtitle for that <laughs> is The Birth of Cool. Uh, it's for those moments where you're like, that character, like, oh cool that character's cool um yeah the moment when a character transcends into awesome yes uh my homework for that is going to be the 2005 film serenity um which is the movie sequel to the cut down too short too young whatever uh cult favorite tv show firefly um if you're listening to this podcast there's a good chance you've already seen firefly and serenity uh so here's a chance to rewatch it well, um, and at, at some point, I believe we assigned an episode of Ariel. Oh, we or totally we assigned did. an episode of Firefly for uh, for homework. Yep. Uh, I will be assigning the 2003 uh, novel by Terry Pratchett called We Free Men. Because it's never too early to do more Discworld. Yes. <laughs> Our guest for next episode is a uh, friend of the show and my cousin, Caitlin Flynn. Um, she is assigning two episodes of i think it's sci-fi channel show uh winona erp martha i know you talked about it's this. all on netflix oh great it's all on netflix it's so good fantastic yeah you were talking about this a couple months ago um as your pop culture credential uh she's assigning yes. uh the season one episode two uh episode keep the home fires burning and the last episode of season two which as of this taping i think is the last episode to air thus far um, I hope you dance. Um, so we're getting the beginning and the end of what's currently available of Winona Earp. Okay. Um, that's the end of our show. Pete, what's our sign off? I don't remember. Class dismissed. <laughs> Class dismissed. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs>